0: At this time, I invite you to take God's word and find Mark 3. Mark 3. Last week, I delivered a message entitled, What to Live For. This morning and for the next two additional Sundays, I went ahead and decided to uh, build on the foundation that we laid last week because there's just too much here. And I want to take advantage of the opportunity to... Dig a little deeper into the lives of the Twelve. So we're going to do that. Today the message is entitled, What to Live For, Part 2. And we'll do a brief survey of the next three preachers who were called and commissioned by Christ to take the gospel to the world. Let's begin by reading Mark 3, verses 13 to 19. Mark 3:13 The word of God And he went up on the mountain and summoned summoned those whom he himself wanted and they came to him And he appointed the 12 so that they would be with him and that he could send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons And he appointed the 12 Simon to whom he gave the name Peter, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder, and Philip, and Andrew, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, to review a little from last week, what this passage reveals is the calling and commissioning of the twelve. And that carries with it, as I argued, profound, universal, universal application for today. In verse 13, it says, Jesus summoned them. He called out to them. He bid them to come to him in order that he might confront them with something. And as the text says, they obeyed him without delay. That's that's their calling to ministry, calling to preach. In verse 14, it says Jesus, Jesus appointed them. That word literally means to make. So if we were to translate that literally, it would say Jesus made them. But that wouldn't make much sense in English, would it? It carries the idea of Jesus morphing them into his servants. He's transforming them into his ambassadors. And so, there you have it. They were commissioned. Made to do something specific. Now, why did Jesus call and commission them? If you look in your Bible it says that they would be with him in other words that they may learn from him that they may do life learn life learn ministry in his presence right they lived they slept they ate they did everything with Jesus for those 3 years right The second reason is so that they could send them so that he could send them out to preach Thirdly to have authority to cast out demons Now, why would Jesus give them the authority to cast out demons? So that the gospel message could be authenticated with divine work. So what do we do with that? What we've interpreted in its context. Now we need to understand the relevance of it today. In a similar way... We, the church, are called and commissioned to propagate the gospel as well. Of course, you're called to spend time with Jesus in his word and through prayer. You talk to Jesus through prayer. He talks to you through his word. But you're not going to spend time physically with him, right? Like the apostles did. You're not going to have the authority to cast out demons. That's not what we're called to do. The message has been authenticated. It's been written down. And that's sufficient. Amen? So then, that leaves evangelism. All followers of Jesus are called and commissioned to evangelize. To be heralds of the truth in some sense, right? I mean, by preaching, I don't mean just standing in a pulpit on Sunday. There is a sense in which you're all heralds. There is a sense in which you are here primarily to make the gospel known. If you identify as a Christian, your purpose in life is not just to be happy. It's not to get rich. It's not even to raise a family. And it's not to be a consumer of ministry. Your purpose in life, if you're a believer, is to labor in gospel ministry until the day you die. That's what I hope you took home with you last Sunday. And as we ended last week, we ended with a brief snapshot of who Peter was. I wish I could go back and dig a little deeper into Peter's life, but we should move on. In Mark 3, 16 to 19, Mark lists who these 12 preachers were. The names of the 12 are recorded in four places in the Bible. Here in Mark 3, again in Matthew 10, and again in Luke 6. And lastly, Acts 1.13. In each list, their names are organized into the same three subgroups of four arranged in order of decreasing intimacy with Jesus. The first group was comprised of two sets of brothers, Peter and Andrew, and James and John. The second group included Philip, Nathaniel, Matthew, and Thomas. And the third group consisted of James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who was replaced by Matthias in Acts 1. And although the order of the names may change slightly from list to list, they always remain in the same subgroup, and that's intentional. You'll also notice that uh, the name starts. Uh, the name that starts each group is consistent. Peter is the first among the firsts. Peter is the head of group one. Philip, the head of group two, and James, the son of Alphaeus, head of group three. So that suggests that each little group had their own leader. These twelve ordinary men, whom were called to faith, were called to preach by grace, and they all teach us something. More than you might think on the surface. And so we would do well to consider each of them individually. As one notable pastor theologian, J.C. Ryle said, "And many things the apostles were intended to be patterns and models for all ministers of the gospel. I would add, so it should also be said of the average Christian. I ended last week with a brief survey of Peter, as I mentioned, and if you weren't here for that or don't remember much, we we, we noticed, we observed his very kind of lucid, impulsive personality, right? He was the guy that was quick to give an answer, and sometimes it was a dumb answer. He was the guy that was always willing to speak up first. Which landed him a harsh rebuke from Jesus. He was the guy that when push came to shove, he flew. But then we noticed as we uh, walked through that first sermon in Acts, that he went from being an impulsive scaredy cat, To a bold, fearless mover and shaker for the gospel. That's what gets me pumped up on Sunday mornings. So just remember with Peter. What I think we can take away from Peter is this. God's redemptive grace and spirit-empowered gifting. Both. Both. Depth of grace and spirit-empowered gifting can take the most pathetic and weak man and transform him into an unstoppable force for the gospel. That's what I believe that we can learn from the first of the twelve. Now today I want to preview the next three men in this list in the first subgroup. The next sermon will tackle the second group and following sermon the third group each subgroup is still under the second main heading of the disciples commissioned to preach in verses 14 to 19. Remember, from last week, the first main heading was disciples calling to preach. That was in verse 13. So keep in mind that for this message and the next two that I preach, we're we're, we're building on the foundation that I laid last week. Think of this expository sermon series as a four-hour film with a week intermission in between. So let's get acquainted with the next man in the list. The next man in the first subgroup of men called and commissioned to preach the gospel. James, verse 17, the son of Zebedee. He is the second man in the first subgroup. Like Peter, James would have had his life radically transformed ...by Jesus when he was regenerated, right? But then his life was turned upside down... ...when he was called and commissioned to preach. There are four men in the New Testament named James. This James is not the same James down in verse 18... ...to put out the obvious. Nor is it James, the brother of Jesus... ...who wrote the epistle of James... Nor is it James, the father of Judas, not Iscariot, which we find in Luke 6. This James is the Apostle James, the brother of John, the son of Zebedee. There's the qualifier, Zebedee. He is the son of Zebedee. Who is this man? Well, just a quick note about him. Though he is mentioned frequently in the New Testament, there is very little known about him. We do know from Mark 1 that Zebedee was a fisherman by trade and had hired servants, which implies what? He was a little rich. He was financially well-off. If you can afford servants, you got some money to spare, right? So beyond that, though, most commentators suggest that Zebedee's entire family was respected among society because we read in John's Gospel that he was known to the high priest and that John used his status as a son of Zebedee to get Peter into the high priest's courtyard on the night of Jesus' arrest. I won't belabor this much, but whatever the reason of Zebedee's prominence, it is clear from Scripture that he was a man of importance to the degree that his family's reputation reached from Galilee all the way to the high priest's household in Jerusalem. So James, what did he do when he grew up? He followed in his daddy's footsteps. to became a fisherman, which is what we find him doing when Jesus called him to discipleship. Remember in Mark 1. If we could select one word to describe this man, James, it would be passionate. Passionate. The nickname given to him by Jesus reflects that fiery character. And commented on his personality, Uh, John MacArthur wrote that it is obvious that he was a man of intense fervor and intensity. There There are incidences in particular that illustrate this. One episode is where James wanted to call down fire from heaven and consume a group of Samaritans, which we'll get to later. But the other, I think, is also telling of James's personality. In Matthew 20, verses 20 to 24, we read that James and John enlist their mother to help lobby for the highest seats in the kingdom. Not to turn there for the sake of time, let me just read the brief passage. Mark, uh, Matthew 20, verse 20, says, Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him, Jesus, with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. And he said to her, what do you wish? She said to him, grant that these two sons of mine sit, one on your right hand and the other on your left in your kingdom. But Jesus answered and said, you do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They said to him, James and John, we are able. So Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink my cup, and be baptized with the baptism with, that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give. But it is for those for whom it is prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, Matthew writes, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. So this account reveals how passionately ambitious these brothers were. By soliciting their mommy to intercede on their behalf to the Lord, For the highest place of prominence in existence. These men demonstrated their selfish lust for power and authority. Why? Why would these disciples of Christ behave such a way? Ever thought about that? You, You see in scripture that these men made a lot of mistakes. Why were they so special that Jesus would choose them or commission them? Well, the simple answer is they weren't special. They were men. And it's been said, and I say it often, the best of men are men at best. Every man fails. Everyone makes bad decisions. Everyone has room to grow, right? It was the same for these ordinary apostles, these ordinary fishermen turned disciples. And you'll notice there uh, that Jesus did not give them what they sheepishly asked for. Instead of giving James a crown, Jesus gave them a martyr's grave. James was beheaded by Herod Agrippa, which marked a beginning of a very severe era of persecution for the church. And what's interesting about James' martyrdom is that he's the first of the 12 to be killed. He's the only his execution is the only one recorded in scripture. But what I find most interesting about James's execution is the events leading up to his beheading. Eusebius, who was an early church historian, wrote down the events that happened right before James lost his head to this quote. The one who led James to the judgment seat when he saw him bearing his testimony was moved and confessed that he himself also was a Christian. So imagine a government official Escorting you to the place of execution. And because of your testimony, it's so strong that the executioner himself is converted. Eusebius goes on to say, They therefore were both led away together. And on the way to the place, he begged James to forgive him. And James, after considering a little, he said, peace be with thee. And James kissed him. And thus they were both beheaded at the same time. So what do we learn from that? We see that James, who was ambitious and passionate, figured out how to control his anger. He figured out how to redirect his zeal, and he figured out how to completely lose his own selfish ambition. He goes from wanting to call down fire from heaven to kissing a man who seconds before was going to be an instrument of his execution. Now when the Bible says all, all things are possible with God, that's what he's saying. God can take the hardest, the most prideful and ambitious man break him and rebuild him into a Christ-like servant. So it would be an understatement to say that the Lord used James to do a wonderful work in the early church. The same could be said for his brother John. That's the third disciple Jesus called and commissioned. Let's look at John. Verse 17, John the brother of James. This is the third man in the first subgroup. Also, like Peter and James, John would have been radically changed after he was converted. Then he would have been transformed again in a different way when he was called and commissioned to preach. Also, like his brother, John, he was a man of passion and intense zeal. You've already noticed something unique about James and John that's recorded here in this text. So we we need to talk about that a little bit. Mark wrote that to them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. Now, Boanerges is simply a transliteration. And sons of God is the translation. Do you guys know what I mean by that? Transliteration is simply putting the original language into something you can pronounce. Like, you guys have heard the word agape. Who's heard of that word agape? What's that mean? It means love, right? Christ is simply a transliteration of a Greek word that means anointed. Okay? So, the literal meaning is sons of thunder, so Mark translates that for us. So you should be wondering... Why would Jesus give them this nickname? Well, I will ask you to turn to Mark, uh, Luke 9. Because I want you to see this. So if you have your Bible and you're tracking with me, please turn to Luke 9. We will find the answer there. Luke 9. Towards the end of the chapter, you know, just to, just to get you caught up on the context here, towards the end of the chapter, Jesus was preparing to pass through Samaria on the way to Jerusalem, from Galilee, for the final Passover. That was significant, that Jesus chose to travel through Samaria because the Jews didn't like the Samaritans. Why didn't the Jews not like the Samaritans? Because they were the offspring of the Assyrians. Due to their physical ancestry, the Samaritans blended elements of truth and paganism. So the Jews uh, viewed their religion as an apostate system. The Samaritans founded their own priesthood. They built their own temple, and they devised their own sacrificial system. So to the uh, religious Orthodox Jews, the entire region of Samaria was deemed unclean. But do you think that Jesus cared about that tradition? What have have I been emphasizing the past few weeks? Is Jesus an observer of man-made tradition? No. He's not. He could care less about it. that's one thing I love about Jesus, don't you? So, Jesus does not do what tradition says, which is to go around Samaria so as to avoid the dirty pagan Samaritans. He goes straight through. And so since the journey was a long one by foot, they needed places to stay along the way. Jesus sends a few men ahead to secure temporary housing. But when they get there, The Samaritans refused to give them occupancy. Why would they do that? Because just as the Jews hated the Samaritans, the Samaritans hated the Jews as well. So much so that they deliberately, actively, intentionally were inhospitable. How would you respond? Picture you're, you're on a long drive, driving across the country. You get this little podunk town in too. You show up with your Subaru. They know you're from the Pacific Northwest. And they, you walk in and you say, sir, can I have a room? They say, no. You're from that crazy liberal place out there in Seattle. We ain't, you ain't welcome here. How would you respond? Well, I might respond like James and John. They weren't happy. In fact, they were filled with rage. Look at Luke nine fifty one. When the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem, Jesus... He sent messengers ahead of him, and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. But they did not receive him because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. When his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them?
1: So these guys
0: have the audacity to go to the Lord and say, Let's call down fire from heaven to Burn them to ashes. I mean, that almost sounds like a terrorist threat, right? Can can you imagine walking out of that little village that refused you awkwardly saying, I'm just going to blow the place up. That sounds crazy, but this is what they're doing. And then Jesus, he's not going to, he knows. These two brothers are off their rocker. He turns to them and rebukes them. He says, you do not know what kind of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And then he went on to another village. So in essence, James and John were so filled. They're so livid. That they wanted the village to be reduced to ashes. That's why Jesus calls these brothers sons of thunder. It's it's not not a good name. This moniker depicted a hot-headed and judgmental attitude that these brothers had towards others. And Jesus calls them this to remind them that they need to forsake that. By calling them sons of thunder, Jesus, in other words, is reminding them of an unrighteous attitude they need to avoid. And, I, and this is just my take on, on this note. I think that Jesus here reveals a little bit of a sense of humor. You know, giving a little, uh, a little chide, a little jab at the side. Come on, sons of thunder, let's go. You know, you ever given someone a nickname where you're just kind of reminding them of a bad quirk they have? I'm tempted to tell that story about my seminary professor. You know, I think those of you who know me well know that I probably lean more towards this type of personality. And uh, I was I was much worse when I first got the seminary. I, I remember I had this, we had this professor and I know that Aaron is exactly who I'm talking about. Um, his name is, uh, what is it? The Greek guy. Farnell. His name is David Farnell. And and, and he has a reputation of being one of the kookiest and, 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 and weirdest professors there. And uh, he he's obsessed with uh, all things Roman and Greek and stuff. So, he, he said something in class I thought that I didn't like at all. And so I went to his office and before I can even get a word out I saw a poster on his wall. The poster had on it the face of Marlon Brando. Did I say that name right? Godfather? It, it, it was a poster of the Godfather. And you probably see that movie, right? You see that movie, Godfather. I, I watched it before I was a Christian. I don't know if I'd watch it anymore. Um, and so, so I was just perplexed that this professor at the master seminary had this on his wall. I still think he shouldn't have it, but whatever. And so, so I was asking him, "Why do you have this poster on the wall?" And and and, and instead of beginning to explain why, he started to ask, ask me about my background. It's like, Carl, tell me, tell me about yourself. Where are you from? You know, where did you go to church? When did you get saved and all that? And then he sat back in his chair and he just started to nod his head. And, uh, and I was like, you know, I really don't think you'd have that poster up there because I think that you are in some ways endorsing this movie. And he looked at me and he said, okay, Mr. Reitman, here's what I'm going to do. Thanks for mentioning that to me. And I, I went home and told my story to Jen and she just died laughing. But you see, that nickname that was given to my professor, and he called me that from now on, Mr. Reitman. It, 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 agree or disagree... He was doing that to kind of chide me a little bit. J- just kind of put me under some a little bit. To remind me that, you know what, maybe you probably shouldn't assume that much and judge people that harshly. And so, in the same way that my crazy Greek professor, who I still can't believe works at the Master Seminary, <laughs> in the same way, he, he, Jesus was doing that to these disciples. And so, you know, I, I'll agree all day long that Jesus was a very kind, humble, loving man. But Jesus had a side to him that we don't like to talk about very often, do, do we? He, he, could, he could be a little sarcastic. He could, he could contend and he could, he could debate and he could rebuke. And, and, and he wasn't going to let these brothers forget that radical and extreme response to these poor Samaritans, refusing them, lodging. And you know what? Just like that ridiculous name my professor gave me that my wife still thinks is funny, just like it had an effect on me, it's obvious that this name, Sons of Thunder, had an effect on John and James. Why? Because as I already said, James kissed the man who was going to kill him seconds later, right? Right? Well, John, you, you, you know what John's nickname became? The Apostle of Love. He went from being a son of thunder to an apostle of love. We find that the major theme in his epistles is love. And doesn't that alone underscore the radical change in John's heart? John ended up being forced into exile, and he was the longest surviving member of the Twelve, and he lived until about 100 A.D. God would use him as a preacher, and as you know, a writer. He wrote uh, five New Testament books, the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, what we call the Johannine Epistles, and of course, Revelation. I love how John went from being a revengeful, self-seeking disciple to a mature, loving shepherd. And as much as I criticize David Farnell, he was so burdened of men coming into the Master Seminary and turning them into what John became. So I've already been transparent with you. How many of you can relate to James and John? How many of you need to learn how to balance zeal and passion with love and humility? Now, I will say this. We we do need men desperately and women who are zealous and passionate about the truth. That's a good thing. The Christian religion, listen, is no place for cowardly, timid, passive people. Especially in positions of leadership. Because if you're timid and passive and cowardly, you're not going to be able to do what Paul commands Titus and Timothy to do. Preach the word, rebuke, reprove, exhort, correct, confront, You have a guy like me, that's hard to do sometimes. So some of you on the other side need to become a little bit more passionate and zealous. But for those of us who are like the sons of thunder, we need to see that zeal and passion needs to be tempered with love and humility. So pray for your elders to master this. Pray for yourself and pray for your spouse. To find balance between zeal and temperance. Finally, fourthly for today, the fourth disciple that Jesus called and commissioned to preach is Andrew. Now, so I just talked about the Sons of Thunder and how a lot of people are tend to be more like them. Now, Andrew is the fourth and final member in the first subgroup, and, and he's the opposite. So if you are the quiet one, if you are the passive one and the, the more timid, scared one, listen to the Andrew. You'll find a friend in Andrew. Like Peter and James and John, he was called to salvation first. He was transformed. He was, he was brought to life spiritually. Then he was called in commission to preach the gospel. The brother of Peter, Andrew, was a disciple of John the Baptist. It's important to understand that. Who began following Jesus early on in his public ministry. Now here's what we just need to understand about Andrew real quick. Andrew is highlighted as being the one who brings individuals to Jesus. He brought Peter. He brought the bull with five loaves and two fish. And he brought a group of Greeks who wanted to see the Lord. So Andrew is the opposite of James and John and Peter. Andrew is the quiet one. He's the man who we, we would probably consider um, the guy ha- being happy, working behind the scenes and talking to people one-on-one rather than preaching to thousands like his brother. So in other words, G- um, P- excuse me, Andrew was content with living in the shadow of Peter. Now, what this doesn't mean is that Andrew was feeble or wimpish. It took a serious amount of manliness to live as John the Baptist did in the wilderness, right? Eating locusts. And it takes a high level of courage to reach out to people on a personal one-on-one level, doesn't it? So... (laughs) For the sake of time, that's really all I could go go into for Andrew. But just, just know that Andrew was the quiet one. He might be the one today to pick up the phone and call somebody who missed church the past three weeks. He might be the one to take you aside and explain something to you. He might be the one... would stay after church and vacuum the floor. According to tradition, Andrew died shortly after introducing the wife of a governor to the gospel. This governor did not like that because his wife was converted through Andrew's one-on-one evangelism. The husband became angry, and he had Andrew crucified on an X-shaped cross. And it was reported that, as tradition says, as he hung there for two days, he would preach the gospel to people as they walked by. So that's just a snapshot of the man, Andrew. Just try to remember... I know most of you can relate to Andrew more than Peter, James, and John, and that's okay. It's not bad to be the quiet one behind the scenes. It's not bad to be the one who doesn't want to stand up and teach. But if you're not a Peter, you've got to be an Andrew. The church needs men and women like Andrew who quietly, humbly labor. So let me encourage you today. If you're a quiet individual, laboring faithfully, let me say thank you. Thank you. We need Andrews. Not everyone is wired to be Peter, James, or John. And if that's the case for you, then you're probably an Andrew. So as I wrap up today, Peter, James, John, Andrew, they were the four most prominent disciples. They will in the future appear as a special inner circle. That's important to understand. Jesus had an inner circle. And at the top of that inner circle was Peter. For that reason, this first subgroup of men are singled out for special attention at the beginning. And what I think we can learn from James and John, it's pretty much the same lesson. God called these men, ordinary men, who had their quirks. They had their weaknesses. And even after the resurrection of Christ and His ascension, they still had quirks and weaknesses. Go to Galatians 4. You'll read how Peter was flirting with Judaism again. Legalism. Paul had to confront him to his face. So not only do we see that God takes rough, rugged, harsh men and transforms them into loving shepherds, they're still going to mess up. They're still going to have problems. They're still going to be unwise. So keep that in mind. We learn from Andrew that it's perfectly legitimate and godly and right for Christians to quietly labor behind the scenes. Next week, we'll get acquainted with the second subgroup of men, Philip, Nathaniel, Matthew, and Thomas, who were also called and commissioned to preach the gospel because that is what they live for. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word and thank you for the time to briefly survey these three men. I pray, Lord, that we will model these men in our own way, to be bold and zealous and passionate for the gospel, to be humbly serving you in many ways, and maybe be reminded of the truth that we are here primarily on this earth to preach the gospel. We need this reminder, Lord, because we forget so easily. In Jesus' name, amen.